listen, shall we get to uh, Latin America uh, and have a look at what's going on in that part of the world? I was going to say uh, simpler conversations than the one that we're having over here, but that's never the case. John Bonfiglio is with us uh, from Mexico now. Hi, John. Hey, Daryl, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, I'm really, really good. Listen, I, I was saying to you before we, we came on, John, that, um, that there seems to be, every time we have a conversation with you, it's, 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 it's about protest at the moment, it's about uh, uprisings and unrest and people being politically active and politically motivated. And the top story that we're getting out of Latin America this morning from Colombia uh, is about further protests after talks between the trade unions and the students have fallen through. Um, what can you tell us about this, John? Can you take us back to what exactly uh, they they are arguing over? Sure. And this is now the third general strike that's been called in the last few weeks in, in Colombia. So if we go back a couple of steps. So essentially there are um, mass protests taking place right across Latin America, which have kind of uh, been following on from each other, a kind of a domino effect, which has really been a reaction to... Um, something of an end point in terms of neoliberal economic policies in particular, in which the kind of the working poor, but also in particular the middle classes, haven't seen any upsurge in economic freedoms or economic well-being over the course of a generation. And so whilst nothing specifically happened across the continent over the course of the last um, few months, really the straw that broke the, broke the camel's back in a, in, a, in a series of local contexts, for example in Chile in terms of the uh, the rise in the metro fare meant that um, a lot of different um, societies saw these protests taking place and crucially working and so take, took on those, those protests themselves. In particular though, in a Colombian context, there's always a local context as well alongside the broader continental context and in particular in a, in a Colombian context, um, the local situation uh, involves and is a result of um, the the implosion of the peace process. So over the course of the last 50 years, there's been essentially um, a civil insurgency, a civil war in um, in Colombia, in which the FARC, the armed revolutionary forces of of Colombia, are kind of a Maoist um, rural military militant organisation um, were were in play. And over the course of that period, that the two generations of 50-year period, over 240,000 people were were killed. And in, a, in and around 2010, a peace, an uneasy peace process began, which was, which was far from perfect, but it, it essentially meant that the huge numbers of people that were that were dying stopped dying. Um, and so this kind of uneasily moved through until this most recent president, Ivan Duque, who's been in power for about a year, year and a half now, who has no interest in the peace process uh, taking place and has kind of taken it back to back to square one and as a result of this we're seeing a lot more killings now now taking place and new cartel activity um, uh, having a foothold in the country and obviously your average individual on the street is not happy about this at all so that's the local context which has led to these hundreds of thousands of people being on the streets of all the major cities in in Colombia and which is about to happen all over again. All right. And and these these talks have had uh, made very little progress, haven't they? Um as you kind of alluded to there. Is there just a lot of conflicting interests at play here? Yeah, there's definitely very polar opposites. I mean, to some extent both sides are are using it for their own political ends um and actually um which we spoke about 
last time there was the, the death of a young student, which almost was the worst thing that could have taken place for the for the president Ivan Duque, because it meant that actually a lot of people then that became the touchstone, um, you know, the, um, the the incident that everybody gathered around in terms of the, a viewpoint of sort of police impunity and and a heavy handedness. Actually, Ivan Duque, um, the president, saw everything that had been taking place in other countries in Chile and Ecuador and Bolivia and actually has played a fairly soft hand and has actually been uh, going along with his business kind of fairly softly, softly. But actually, to some extent, that's actually played into the hands of the protesters because they think that he's running scared. So I, I think even if there were to to be some concessions and some middle ground found in, in, in the talks, I don't see that the protesters are actually going to be, uh, are actually going to give way until they actually leverage their position um, as far as possible to impact on the ultimate remo removal of, uh, of Ivan Duque. I mean, whether that takes place or not, or whether, you know, the fudged issue continues to move through, as has happened again in in, in Ecuador with Lenin Moreno, in, in, in Bolivia at the moment, where there's also an uneasy peace on the streets, or whether something dramatic happens which changes the status quo, is, is anybody's guess at, at this point in time. All right. Um, elsewhere, John, uh, we've also had some news in the last 24 hours about the activist in Honduras who uh, was killed, I think, was it 2016, I, I think? There's, yeah. been a, there's been a sentencing. There has been a sentencing. A, a year, year and a half after the initial uh, conviction took place of, of her killers. I, I mean, it sounds like a long time, but actually in, in the Honduran justice system, it's almost as though that was expedited, to, to be honest. I mean, it's a notoriously slow um, justice process, and actually for this to take three years is actually really quick by their standards. Berta Cáceres, as you said, was killed in, in 2006. She was killed in, inside her own uh, home at the time by, by persons unknown. Um, in a local context, she had been defending or resisting the building of a massive hydroelectric dam in uh, in Honduras from, uh, from an international Honduran conglomerate which had not just been building this particular hydroelectric dam but also had had instigated a number of major um, infrastructural projects in and around Honduras since the the last coup that we saw the last proper official coup that we saw in in Latin America in 2011 when the Honduras president was 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 exiled and deposed by the by the military there um, and uh, obviously a, a terrible event locally and the worry locally was that her killers were never going to be brought to justice and and this sentencing now it's kind of awkward because on the one hand, for sure, her killers, who nobody really doubts, you know, did what they did, have been sentenced to between 16 years and 50 years in prison. But as her daughters uh, came out and said today, uh, the downside is that the intellectual authors, the masterminds and the financiers of, of the killing are still at large. So the guys who did it, for sure, have, have gone down, but the people who ordered the killings are still, are still at large. And again, this is a fairly common story across not just Honduras, but, but more broadly Latin America. And it plays into the broader story in which not just Honduras is one of the deadliest countries in the world for indigenous land rights defenders and environmental activists, but also across Latin America as well. So certainly what you see in a lot of uh, countries right across the region at the moment is um, environmental activists and in particular indigenous uh, land rights protesters. I mean, the Amazon in, in Brazil is a particular point of flare up at the moment with the Bolsonaro policies um, but what what you see really is 
rather than go through due process the the loggers and the miners and angry business um largely like I, it's not a controversial point to, to say essentially take the law into their own hands and they expedite the process by essentially taking out the problem and even if the guys who take out who are whose hands are on the trigger um get sent down which anyway very rarely ends up being the case that the people who are the masterminds behind it for sure um continue to sit happily by the side of their uh, pool in wherever yeah. you know whatever resort it is that they that they live in wow yeah can you give us some context as to, as to who this protester was as well yeah i mean she was a really important figure not just in honduras but also more broadly in in latin america i mean for sure in in terms of her her people and the resistance of her people but she was a she'd won a number of major international awards for, for her environmental activism but also in terms of um her role as a as a kind of feminist protester um and defender of um of women's rights as well as the as well as the environment and also indigenous groups so it, she touched a number of different bases and she was um i wouldn't say necessarily famous uh before her death but for sure she was very well known and highly regarded and was really somebody who who protests and actions would would focus on she was somebody who you know if she walked into a room or if she was at the if she was in a march you would know that she was there i mean you know the whispers would come Berta, uh Berta's arrived etc so she was absolutely a figurehead in these contexts so so her death spoke much more broadly not just of the incident itself and her death but also of you know what tends to happen to people like this that put themselves in the in the firing line in since 2015 there's been uh 25 different land rights protesters or activists have died in in honduras and this is the case right right across the region i mean almost once a week i would say a new story comes across my desk in terms of you know another indigenous um land rights uh, individual protester being disappeared or uh, or being killed or being being found dead mm. um sadly it's a very common state of affairs and for sure in the environmental in the times of I mean, I'm going to say, I'm going to use the phrase environmental apocalypse. And I know it sounds heavy-handed, but certainly the stuff that I've seen on the world's oceans and in the world's um, jungles and a mass die-off, for example, that happened in Mexico's southern jungle just last year, um, ocean acidification, the, the, um, the absolute uh, apocalyptic destruction of the, of the world's coral reefs, coral reefs. I mean, I know a lot of us just read about it in the newspapers and see it on TV and hear these terrible stories. But I, I've directly witnessed a lot of these things actually taking place, and, it, and it, to my mind, it's no exaggeration to state that we uh, we absolutely live in a in a time of environmental crisis. Well, on on that note as well, uh, John, it, the Cayman Islands is a particular focus. Uh, campaigners are saying that they're they're fighting a battle there against cruise ship liners. Is that right? Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. And just to give a bit of context in terms of the Cayman Islands, I mean, most people will have heard of the Cayman Islands either, you know, as a tourism hotspot or as a, yeah. somewhere to maybe invest your money and get a little bit <laughs> yeah. less charged on it it's, as, it's, an offshore, it's a as an offshore centre. But It's a beautiful uh, part of the yeah. world and it's convenient if you're rich, I think, is the... Yeah, <laughs> that's worth yeah. Describing. British, yeah. British overseas territory, um, second biggest British overseas territory after Bermuda. It lies 
south of Cuba, west of Jamaica, and east of the Yucatan Peninsula, composed of three islands, population of 60,000, so tiny. So if you think like Brighton is 230,000, roughly York is 150,000 in terms of population, so contextually it's, it's absolutely tiny. But what, what's been taking place there recently is that it's a very convenient stop-off for absolutely huge super cruise ships. And, and what takes place there as things stand is because there's no deep water port to, um, to offset the tourists essentially they have to uh, anchor offshore and then get ferried onto onto the island, which takes uh, which takes time. Perhaps it's, it costs a little bit more for the for the cruise ships, etc. But I would say that actually, crucially, one of the biggest things that that means is that the cruise ships have to hand over the passengers to independent operators who maybe have different ideas and suggestions as to what the cruise ship passengers might do with their time whereas if the cruise ship directly delivers them to a pier they can much more easily control any limited spend that those cruise ship passengers have so ultimately it's it's an economic decision and it absolutely what has to take place in georgetown the capital in terms of driving this forward essentially to get these superhuman cruise ships in they have to dredge the port which is full of coral i mean we spoke about coral a minute ago and uh, yeah 50 percent of the world's coral has disappeared over the course of the last generation so this is a massive bone of contention uh, locally and there's going to be a referendum next year in which you've got i guess the kind of standard uh, polarized views or or antagonists on the one hand individuals there uh, environmental defenders who say you know this is not this is uh, irreparable damage that's going to take place in terms of the marine environment and our heritage and so on then you've got other economic advocates that say well you know we need to develop the island economically for future generations and so on so this is this is certainly getting people onto the streets and hot under the collar in grand cayman and and not just there i mean the reason it's a it's a story is because cruise ships have ha, can basically pick and choose where they want to go and it's really important in terms of you know the the economy of of business in in these places and, and it's a story which plays out certainly right across the the Caribbean, Latin America, but more broadly internationally as as well. Yeah, I think is it. I think it's uh, we're, we're such a small country and a small a small part of the world in terms of population and in terms of size. Um, the, the the vast numbers of people that that come there must have some impact. I mean that, that that's some weight for it to take, John. Yeah, totally. And 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 in terms of uh, like cruise ship visitors, ordinarily they're not. You know, they'll not be overnight visitors. They'll stay a few hours, do a couple of tours, and then go back. I think the stats about um, economic impact into the Cayman Islands from cruise ship visitors and overnight visitors is really interesting. Um, So last year, there were 2 million cruise ship visitors into the Cayman Islands, and they generated 20% of the tourism economy. And there were 400,000 overnight visitors, so a fifth, 20% of the cruise ship visitors, but they generated 80%. Um, of the economic uh, benefit of uh, or income of tourism into into the islands. So ordinarily, people would say, "Hold on, we need the income. It's really important for these cruise ships to arrive." But actually, the fundamental facts of um, how cruise ships work is that they they arrive on mass, they appear, uh, they they gather, they buy a couple of things, or they take a lot of photographs and they disappear. But actually, there's no real economic legacy per person in the way that other lower scale tourism uh tourism take place takes place for sure there are some companies and some individuals that make an awful lot of money from cruise ship tourism but they have no vested interest in actually in successfully impacting on the local economy all that money floats around um in absentia of these real places Mm. beautiful part of the world though isn't it 
Do you get out there? Do, do you get out there much? Um, I've been out there a little bit, yeah, in terms of uh, like previous uh, sort of scientific missions, I guess, over the course of the last uh, of the last few years. Uh, but ordinarily, it's kind of to remote, strange places. Normally, places like Grand Cayman or um, or places in the Bermuda Islands and stuff tend to be like ports of entry for me to get to other places. So it, it doesn't tend to be tourism based. It tends to be all right. We land somewhere in order to be able to get somewhere more remote for whatever body of work it is that we're we're looking at or story that. Uh, that we're covering, but actually, in terms of the beauty of these places, the the Sargasso issue of the course of the last couple of years has also impacted massively on tourism in in the, um, in the right across the Caribbean. So Sargasso used to come from south of Bermuda, um, Sargasso, this kind of uh, thick brown seaweed, but because of global warming, a new Sargasso um, bed has emerged between Africa and Brazil, and uh, every hurricane season, it's been inundating beaches right across the. Uh, the Caribbean and, and generating a like a, in in a mine Riviera context tourism went down 30% last year mm. because of the because of the problem. I mean, hundreds of thousands of pounds are spent trying to clear this up on a uh, on a daily basis. We, again, we don't necessarily see this these impacts taking place, but for sure they're there. Goodness me! Well, it is a wonder you get anything done when you're out in those parts of the world, though, John. I'll be honest. I just want to sit by the beach, I think, and uh, sip a cocktail. Yeah, um, but, after, but after five minutes. You get a little bit bored, don't yeah, you? Yeah, you do. To be fair, you do. <laughs> uh, listen, just I want to talk uh, talk qu- just quickly about the uh, the other story that's kind of coming out of your neck of the woods, um, uh, and this sort of battle that Brazil and Argentina are currently in with America and with uh, President Trump. Said that he's going to place tariffs on steel and uh, aluminium imports uh, from Brazil and from Argentina, which is going to have a really profound epe- uh, effect on on that part of the world, John. Yeah, I mean, um, and this is obviously no new story i mean trump um threatening tariffs takes place on an yeah. i wouldn't even say on a daily basis it takes place on an hourly basis it's almost like he picks a country out of a hat <laughs> and then threatens tariffs on them it's a standard modus operandi uh, for him if it ends up to i mean there's obviously a big um gap between what he says and what actually ends up happening in terms of that uh that administration however if it does end up taking place uh, I, I doubt it'll take place in a brazilian context because Bolsonaro is very much a, a friend of his and, and Brazil is uh, beginning to dip into recession and it doesn't help uh, Trump's foothold or the Trump administration's foothold in Latin America if he begins to to turn off the likes of Bolsonaro that are his biggest supporters there. Uh, but certainly in terms of the, the new leftist um, regime that's coming into Argentina and the Argentine economic problems that have beset the country over the course of the last 20 years, any negative impact that takes place or anything really that sets them back uh, really does uh, push much harder than just the the act itself and mm. could cause significant uh, significant issues. And what, what, does that, what does that mean in real terms then, John, to people and people's lives in that part of the world? So in, 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 this, in, in an Argentinian context specifically, so Brazil definitely has had, um, a sl- uh, since it was part of the BRIC nations and was one of the fastest growing economies in and around 2000, that all slowed and it dipped into uh, recession over the course of the last few years. It's gradually emerging from that, but it's very... Bolsonaro was elected on the uh, on a promise of reducing corruption, crime, and on an upsurge in the economy. That hasn't really taken place. I think we can kind of discount Brazil really as a, um, as a general example there. But in an Argentinian context in which you have inflation rates in the high 60% in which uh, there's been... Um, a number of IMF uh, bailouts in which, I mean, just contextually, uh, six months ago, 
the 20 odd ministries of government were halved in terms of austerity and cutbacks. I mean, imagine that in the UK if, you know, overnight suddenly, you know, the Ministry of Health and Education were, were linked together um, and the, the ministries uh, were reduced by half overnight. And so any shock, any external shock tends to be amplified uh, and amplified massively. Oh. Uh, people run for to withdraw the money from, from their banks, they sell whatever it is that they have, and obviously this has a an ongoing effect which significantly affects people to the tune of not being able to buy food, to the tune of losing their homes, um, you know, all manner of things which, uh, which really uh, echo through right across Argentine, uh, Argentine society. Mm. Well, we watch, which is really all that we can do at the moment. Um, John, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much as ever. No problem. Take care now. Um, you too, buddy. Uh, one of my favourites, John Bonfiglio. In Latin America, 